I was thinking this afternoon of a time when we were having a fellowship in there. I think all of our fellowships are pretty much in there. But we were having a, uh, I think we just had a meal and a Bible study. And I remember it was the first time I shared about Paul facing his obstacles. And it's from the 16th chapter of Acts. And I think we've repeated it several times since then. But just by way of recap, I want to just quickly tell you this story. This story was prompted for me by a song that we were singing yesterday. And it's a song I've sung all my life, but it kind of struck me. And you know how things, things do you like that sometimes. But the song, Bessie was singing it, and it, it goes, um, He never promised there'd only be sunshine. He never promised there'd be no rain. But he only promised a heart full of singing at the very things that once brought pain. And there's something about that song that I don't like because the very things that once brought pain still bring pain. But then there's something I really like about the song because we're still supposed to have a heart full of singing even in that pain. And I know that people can look at joy in different ways. You can look at joy and say, well, I'm going to try to just pretend even though the circumstance is terrible, even though I'm miserable, I'm just going to put on this saccharine sweet smile. Yeah, I'm doing great, you know, and everybody, oh yeah, everything's fine. That doesn't serve any purpose. Amen. And that's, that's just a lie. But the joy of the Lord that is our strength, it runs deeper than that. And what joy is, is really, it's a kind of active, excited trust that says, there is a big plan and a big purpose for my life. And even in this situation, whether that be comfortable or, dis or uncomfortable, I still believe God has it all in control. I still believe that this is somehow going to turn for his purpose. Now, as soon as we say something like, God's got it all in control, immediately images of predestination and Double predestination starts to swarm into our minds. So when I say God's got it all in control, what am I really saying? Am I saying that, okay, so-and-so suffering with cancer, that's okay, God gave them that cancer. Is that what I'm saying? Does God give people cancer? Does God give people disease of any kind? Suffering, pain, affliction. Is that God? Well, there are some who would say, yes, it is. God is the creator of all things. Amen? Would you agree that God is the creator of all things? Oh, okay, good. God is the creator of all things. Okay, so if there's something bad in the world, God created it, didn't he? Well, yes, he did. He's the creator of all things. If he's the creator of all things, why didn't he create the bad thing? He created it. We violated his word. Amen. Well, the first question to ask is, is everything in its created state? That right there tells us what we need to know, doesn't it? If I make this incredible German chocolate cake and somebody takes it and, you know, grinds it up and mixes a little bit of gravel here and a little bit of oil there and, you know, some sawdust, sprinkles it with some more uh, coconut and puts it on the table and somebody comes along and says, this is terrible, who made this? 
Well, it'd be true to say that I was the original creator of it, wouldn't it? But it's hardly true to say that I created it as that. We agree. Amen. So God created it, but it's not in its created form. It's not in its original form, is it? It's in a transgressed, vitiated form. It's in a messed up form, simply put. Does God not send judgment into people's lives? Does the Lord judge people? Mm, why are y'all being so quiet? Is there such a thing as the judgment of the Lord? Why did you answer yes to that, but you didn't answer yes to the previous one? I always wonder what it is that makes us... I guess I have to put some scriptural fervor behind it. And then you say yes every time. So there is such a thing as, a, as the judgment of the Lord. So God does judge people. Those judgments that He sends into people's lives, are they good? Sweetness, kindness, gentleness, patience, all that kind of nice stuff? What does judgment look like? Give me an example of judgment. Let's take something from the New Testament. Anybody have an example? Uh, Herod. Uh, Herod. What happened? He was struck by angels and he lost his arms. Okay. Anybody else have an example from the New Testament? Very good. Keep that one in mind. Were those worms a good thing, by the way? Okay. Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Amen. So were those good things that God did in the New Testament when He judged those people? Well, the psalmist says the judgments of the Lord are good altogether. Anyway, we won't get tangled up in that. But they're not exactly nice things, are they? God judged him. God sent worms into his life. God struck him dead, just like that. You comfortable with that? I guess we just have to kind of get, we're having to make a little leap here. We're leaping across a little chasm, and I'd like to go ahead and build a bridge there. Okay? We're leaping from God's nice and doesn't do bad things to it's the judgment of the Lord, and I want to know how it's the judgment of the Lord. Your uncle's giving that example too. Okay, so what you're really referring to is passive judgment, right? Inactive judgment. Do you agree with that? She's saying it's passive judgment. So is it passive judgment when Ananias and, and, and his wife get nuked there? It wouldn't feel like that if it was us. I'm serious. So there is such a thing as passive judgment. Let's talk about that for a minute, okay? How does passive judgment work? What I'm going to term passive judgment, I'm not sure if that's clinically perfect definition. How does passive judgment work? God says some, a bunch of things at the beginning of the world. He sets things in eternal motion by his eternal word. He speaks into existence the word that would make the leaf grow out of the branch, the word that would make the bud come out of the leaf, 
and the flower from the bud and the seed from the flower and the tree from the seed. Amen? He speaks things into motion that have their own innate perpetual motion inside of them. I've said it's like a tire. You roll it, it's going to keep rolling long after you let go. Well, so it is with God's Word. He spoke things into motion. He spoke life, the principles of life. He spoke them into motion. But then something significant happened on the last day of creation. God did something. What did He do? God rested. Which, are we supposed to understand that He went and took a nap? He that keepeth Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. So that's not what He was doing. He wasn't tired after all that work. Seven days is a long time, but not for God. So what does it mean God rested? He's done. He's finished. He doesn't have to keep, he doesn't have to maintain a personal activity for this to keep going on. Do you understand? And on that first, on those first, in that first week of creation, one of the things God set in motion is the principle of gravity. Okay? Principle of the orbits of the earth. There's all kinds of principles he, uh, that he put in, in motion. One of the principles was gravity. And she said, if I fall off a cliff, or rather jump off a cliff, I violated a principle of nature, and God created nature, right? So when I'm at broken in pieces at the bottom of the cliff, somebody could come up and say, look what the judgment of God hath done to him. In a sense, that's true, isn't it? Because God spoke that principle of nature into existence, and I violated His Word when I thought I could transgress it without consequence. So in a real sense, it is true that that would be the judgment of God. But when God finished His work, what did He say? Tov, tov. He says, it's so good, so good. It was good. And God saw that it was good. Through and through. It was a cake before they put the gravel and all the other stuff in it. Amen? It was just what it was supposed to be. God rested with a creation that was meant to love us and care for us and nourish us. But then we violated that creation. And God in His infinite wisdom, He could see that that was our proclivity. So in His infinite wisdom, He encoded into that nature automatic responses that would bring pain into our lives, right? I talked about this recently, about the mercy of pain. God put pain in, in creation so that we would be harmed and that would keep us from destroying ourselves and make us turn back to Him. You say, how does pain, how is pain a mercy? Amen. Well, if I, if I get near the fire, my hand burns, I feel pain. If I touch it, my hand burns, I feel pain, so I withdraw my hand, right? If there was no pain, my hand would burn off before I even realized that I had touched the fire. Do you understand? Well, the same is true of sin. Sin will destroy us. It'll eat us up. So God brings pain in the creation so that in its violated form, creation would raise its porcupine quills against us and oppose us in the chance that we would turn back to our God. And so many do. Great, but this is a passive kind of judgment. What about the active kind of judgment? What about the kind of judgment of Herod or Ananias? That's not the same kind of judgment as the passive kind. 
What's happening there? Would it be the angels, the Elohim, that are set to defend the honor of God? Yes, it would be that. The angels, they're part of that creation. But they're not trees, they're not cliffs. They have will. They have decision-making powers. They don't have the Holy Spirit. God is not on intimate terms with them as He is with us in many ways. But they have great power. And the Bible calls them something that's pertinent right here. What does He call them? Well, He calls them the guardians of what? The guardians of His honor. Paul tells us that the law was instituted at the hands of angels. Well, it may not have been Paul, but tells us that the, the, the law was instituted at the hands of angels. Now, angels are very similar to, the, to what I was saying before, but they are they're personal beings. Well, not personal, but they have will and choice. And they're the guardians of God's honor. My dog has will and choice. And the dog I currently have, you have nothing to be afraid of. You can break into my house if you need to. But the dog is, I used to have a 208-pound Irish wolfhound that stood over seven feet at the shoulders. If you had come onto the porch in the middle of the night, he's the friendliest thing that you've ever met. I mean, just as soft as a teddy bear, and they wouldn't hurt you. But if you violated an order that he was situated in, my dog Bear was even more like this. If you came up on the porch in the middle of the night and he, didn't, he knew you weren't supposed to be there, he wouldn't be acting on my benefit when he ripped your arm off. But in a sense, he would, wouldn't he? He would know instinctively this is wrong and he would go to correct it. But I wouldn't have necessarily given him that directive, would I? Hmm? Amen? So there are creatures in God's creation that have choices and they have instincts that protect him against our violations. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he is personally instigating those assaults. But it does still mean that we can call it God. Do you understand? Yes. Not only that, but God can use the devil in this way. of countries that he would later reject and say that Assyria. I mean, he was totally against Assyria in the entire narrative of the Old Testament. But at one point he says, Assyria, my rod, is going to discipline my people. And he says, and when it's done, I'm going to discipline them. Do you understand how God uses these, what my dad calls countervailing powers, to discipline us, to judge us? Okay, I'm starting to get it, Aussie. Well, it's my turn to make something complicated then. It's all starting to fall into place. There's passive judgment, and that is us violating the laws that God set in motion at creation. There's active judgment, and that is God uncovering us and lifting his protection from us so that we fall prey to the powers, whether evil or good, angelic or demonic, that would otherwise buffet us and harm us so that we would come to our senses and come back to him. Do you understand? But God is not necessarily the one doing any of it. Oh, oh, what a relief. Okay, what happens when something terrible occurs in the life of a believer 
who is still covered by God. If we take this argument to the nth degree, then what we have to say is, oh, so those bad things happened to Herod because God lifted his covering from him. I know why Ananias died, because God lifted his covering from him. And the forces that wanted him dead all along, whether angelic or demonic, boom! They dropped their cruise missiles and it was over. So that means every time someone dies, God's lifted his covering from them. How do we resolve this contradiction? Here it is. If when bad things happen, they happen because God has removed his covering then how is it that bad things happen when God hasn't removed his covering? By human and by mankind's decisions. We're yes. born into this world as sinners. Mm. Um, you know, when we receive the knowledge of Jesus Christ, when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, nothing the Holy Spirit can cover us. But even so, mankind still has the will to make their own decisions. If the decision isn't right, then... Well, not only that, but that some of those decisions have already been made. But she's, this is exactly right. God's covering does not negate the fall. The curse of man that came by man's decisions. Do you understand? We are still in a fallen world. So God does have purposes. He has, he, God does purpose to protect us physically. And for that reason, we thank him for our health every day. But God has a higher purpose than our health. And our health has to, at times, succumb to that higher purpose. Do you understand? But ultimately speaking, the point is, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross did not really save the creation and the world that was under the curse. It hasn't been saved yet. Do you understand? It saved human souls. It saved us from hell. But this world and all the works of it are going to melt with a fervent heat. We are under a curse, and every single one of us is going to die. Amen? And the covering that God is bringing is a covering of our soul, our mind, our spirit, those intangible, non-physical aspects that are eternal. And yes, those do ramify into a temporary covering of our physical well-being. But at at some point, that's not going to last. That's going to have to give way to a higher purpose. When Jesus was here on this earth, he exhibited one thing unequivocally, and that is that he cared about the physical well-being of those around him. He healed more than he did anything else. So it is wrong to say that God is not meddling in the affairs of a fallen world. But it is is also wrong to say that that is his primary purpose, when in fact it is a much lesser subsidiary purpose to his great purpose. His great purpose is that we would have the wherewithal within our souls to endure and conquer death by the power of his resurrection. And there comes all the ways that it can give glory to him. It's for the glory of God. How can suffering give glory to God? Because if somebody is willing to lay down their life for the God who is love, and trust that they will be raised, God will raise them up through that death, and it proves that love is more, is stronger than death.
Mm, that's, that's true. At least the last thing you said is very true. Let me just say this. How did man fall away from God? How do you and I fall away from God? By putting this flesh and its desires above our soul and its requirements. We betrayed God because of what was pleasing to the eye and pleasant to the taste. Human needs, physical needs, have displaced spiritual priorities. And that is the betrayal of man to his God. So the ultimate way to glorify him is to rectify what we have ruined. And to say, God, you are worth more. What happens in the spirit... What happens in my soul is worth more to me than what happens in the body. And I am able to see a purpose beyond the physical. I am able to look past the cross for the joy set before me. And in doing that, scorn the cross, despising its shame, and eventually sit down at the right hand of the throne of glory. So it gives glory to God because it says the relationships and priorities in the spiritual realm are higher to me than the demands of my flesh that made me abandon God in the garden from the beginning. Hence, Paul can say something like this. He who has suffered in the body has ceased from sin. If you can face suffering and affliction and say, God, I prayed that you would take this thorn out of my side three times, but you showed me that your higher purpose is perfected in this weakness. So amen, Jesus. Then there's sin has ceased and reconciliation has come. We've stood the test. We've told God he's worth more than our physical needs. Jesus prayed in the garden, and we all do. Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, now it's not possible for us to transgress the higher purpose. That higher purpose should never be transgressed. But if it's possible to not transgress that higher purpose and yet still do your will and avoid this cup, let it pass from me. We, knew it. we know it's possible for God to just snatch the sickness or take the cross. We know that's possible. That's not the question. What we're really saying is, God, if this doesn't threaten the most important purpose of my life, please take this out of my life. But we keep in our minds that the most important purpose is to bear witness to the truth. That's what Jesus said. He said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause or this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth that's where the glory comes that's the highest purpose and Jesus was saying if there's some way God that I can fulfill my purpose of bearing witness to the truth without having to drink this cup then please God take it from me but nevertheless your will be done his will is to demonstrate to the principalities and powers that they do not own us anymore. They who tricked us and lured us and snared us by the deceitfulness of sin, by the allurements of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, it does not have any hold on us anymore. 
They who think they can intimidate us into betraying God by heaping suffering and pain on us like Job, we will say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's the truth. That's the ultimate test of a human being's life. That's the highest purpose. And so we say, God, if it's possible, then please. And over and over and over, God spares us. He heals us. He gives us health and longevity. But ultimately, we are all involved in a great countdown. And the day is going to come. And are we going to be able to sing through the very things that once brought betrayal? That's what the devil was counting on with Job, isn't it? If I take this away from him, he'll betray you. If I take this away from him, he'll betray you. If I take this away from him, he'll betray you. But he didn't do it. He could still sing through the very things that once caused betrayal. So many times we try to make the question one of whether or not our flesh needs something. Brothers and sisters, that is not the question. Our flesh does need something. The question is, are we willing to deprive our flesh to the point of death in honor of a higher purpose? The purpose of bearing witness to the truth that there is something that has a greater strength and grip on us than our flesh and its needs. So the devil says, ah, he'll betray you, Lord. The Lord says, no, he won't. The devil says, yes, he will. Watch this, I'll take this spouse away from him. I'll, I'll take his health away from him. I'll take this dream away from him. And all the while, we're desperate because we want to communicate to God that, hey God, our flesh really needs this. Our flesh, our flesh really needs to get out of Gethsemane if it's going to make it. And we think God thinks we can just kind of take it. No, but to this we were called, to not take it, but to die. Jesus said the Gentiles seek after these needs of their flesh. And he said, what did he say? He said, do not do this. Do not seek after these things, for your heavenly Father knows what? Your heavenly Father, it doesn't say he knows that you want them. It says your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things are subsidiary, lesser purposes that he will try to fulfill. God knows that we need them in our flesh. And it's his good pleasure to give us what we need. But there is a higher purpose that trumps those needs. Do you understand? So we seek the Lord three times over the thorn in our flesh. We beg God for help. But we always come back around and say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Seek first. What does that represent? That represents a priority, doesn't it? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things are add-ons. That's a priority. He didn't say don't have any of these things in your life. He didn't say you don't need them. He said there's a priority that should trump them.
Brothers and sisters, what is a misplaced priority? It's an idol. Wrong priority equals idolatry. I need food. But if I prefer my food above my family, above my obligations and responsibilities, above everything else, my own health, if I prefer that food, that food that I need to survive has become my idol and my demise. There are a lot of things that we need. We need love. We need understanding. We need companionship. We may need to get married. We may need better health. And these are all things that our Heavenly Father knows we need. But the ultimate challenge of our life is whether or not there is something that supersedes those needs. And that is, do we bear witness to the truth that what is in the Spirit is greater than what we need in the flesh? Paul had a thorn in his side. And he sought the Lord for it three times. God, please take this away. Just like Jesus. If it is possible, Father, if it is possible. So what are the needs in your life tonight? If you don't want those things to become an idol, then you better add a clause onto your prayer. If it is possible without threatening the ultimate priority of my existence, God, well then let this be. And then you better add another clause. But nevertheless, not to in any way threaten or lessen the ultimate purpose. That's submission to God. That's obedience to the cross. Remember that Bible study I was going to tell you about in there? We gathered around and I told them how Paul had just come out of a fruitful field of ministry. And he was with a, a sizable company of people and uh, maybe half a dozen, I don't know. And um, he wanted to keep doing God's purpose. And so he determined to go to Asia. He didn't sit around saying, God, if it's your will, you know, just let me know. I kind of feel something about Asia. That's not what he did. He determined to go to Asia. But the Holy Spirit stopped him at the gates. And what was his immediate response? He determined to go to Bithia. But the Spirit of Jesus forbade him. Do you understand? His attitude is, I'm doing this, God. I'm going to find your will. I'm going to do it until I find it. Not I'm going to wait to find it so I can do it, but I'm going to do it until I find it. Second time, Bithia, I'm sorry, Mysia. Tried to go to Mysia, then into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came to the town of Troas. We know that there in Troas, he had a dream that a man in Macedonia was saying, come to Macedonia. So immediately he got up on the heels of these two setbacks, these two failures, and he went straight away to Macedonia. And when he got there, they got in an argument so fast that the city officials grabbed him, beat him, and took him to jail. They're in Macedonia, 
in a city called Philippi. Amen? Or a region. Let me make sure I'm getting this right. Yeah. Yeah. They're in a city called... From there, they went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. So remember the man saying, come to Macedonia? Come find the will of God for your life? Come find the will of God. Come to Macedonia. He gets to Macedonia. He goes to this city, and they throw him in jail. This is where we hear about the Philippian jail. They haven't even hardly got to witness. Nobody's come to God. Nothing good has happened. It's all bad. But it's not all bad because they're bearing witness to the truth above and before everything else. Well, they're caught in this jail that night. And what do they do? They find their songs and they start shouting out to the world, God's eternal purpose is worth more than my needs. Bearing witness to the truth is worth more than being in prison. They start shouting out to God in the world that they haven't lost their song. Praising God and worshiping. Whoo! And God says, there are two people right there who can change the world. So he sends his earthquake and chains start breaking and all kinds of things start happening. Ironically, in praising God in their sufferings, God took away their sufferings. They start shouting and praising God, singing hymns and songs. Earthquake comes, Philippian jailer, everybody's gone free, or he thinks they have, even though they haven't. So the Philippian jailer pulls out his sword, and he's about to fall on his own sword because it was a Roman colony, and it was his life for their life. He's about to fall on his sword, and Paul calls out to him. He says, hey, sir, we're all here. We haven't left our thorn. We see God's got a purpose greater than our physical needs. Amen? Jesus said, I esteem the word of God worth more than my necessary bread. So he calls out to him, hey, we're still here. Philippian jailer comes in, and he comes to Jesus. Amen. He's baptized that very night. He washes their wounds. He heals them. And he and his household are baptized in Jesus' name. There's the Macedonian man. It was for that man that Paul went through all that trouble. Failed attempt here. Failed attempt there. Finally getting this vision. Being beaten with rods on the back out of the city. Being imprisoned. But he found his song in his trial. The very things that once caused betrayal, now he can sing through. And what happened? Just like with Christ, he went through it, but he rose above it. Resurrection ultimately conquered even the physical. And the same thing is going to happen to us, every single one of us. If we can finish with that song still in our hearts and on our lips, someday we're going to put off this old Weak and beggarly body, amen? We're going to put on incorruptible bodies, amen? We're going to be made like the Lord in a twinkling of an eye. Before you can even say, Jack Frost, we're going to be changed, amen? And there will be no sadness. He'll wipe away every tear. We won't even be able to remember the thorns, amen? But it was because, it will be because 
we bore witness to the truth and endured the thorns as lesser needs to the great need of demonstrating our faithfulness to the one who purchased our souls. He never promised there'd only be sunshine. He never promised there'd be no rain. But he only promised a heart full of singing at the very things that once caused betrayal. God, when I think it's tough, when I think nobody understands, that's when my life is in the balance. That's when I'm being tested. When I feel like I can't go on. When I feel like I'm beyond my limits. This may just be in the housework of a daily life. This may be in taking care of the kids. This may be in training them and teaching them the rebellion they show you as a thanks. But when you're at your limits and you know what you need, you need a break. You need to get out of this circumstance. Can you put your needs in God's hands on the altar of his sacrifice and still bear witness to a higher truth? Can you find your song in prison? Can you find your song in prison? Well, then you might be a Christian. Nothing wrong with praying that it'll change so long as you, as you begin it with if it's possible and you end it with nevertheless. Because God believed in you when he put his faith, he put his love, he put his spirit inside of you. Don't fail him. Find your song, amen, and sing it with all your voice. Hallelujah. And just maybe the prisons will shake. Lord, I feel hopeless. I feel alone. My life feels meaningless. Well, you've lost your song, amen. You've lost the picture of the greater purpose, amen. I'm gonna write a song called, I'm here to bear witness to the truth. When you know your, your highest purpose, suddenly whew, the angels start ministering to you. The voice of Jesus whispers, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Not sufficient for my flesh to feel what it needs to feel. Not sufficient for the strength I can't regain. But sufficient to bear witness to the truth, which is the only priority of my life.